world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Good to be with with y'all this morning. Um, Welcome to Redemption Church. We are a community that's offering connection to Jesus for absolutely anyone. We believe in pursuing connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. Uh, We're really glad that you're here. If you're new to Redemption, I want to invite you. There's a card in front of you. It says Radically Inclusive Hope on it. If we would, fill that out. Drop it in the box on the way out. Um, Let us know that you're here. Someone will get in touch with you later this week to say hello hear your story a little bit, um, invite you to ask whatever questions you have about who we are, what we do. We'd love also to pray for you. So if you have any special prayer requests, you can write them on there, drop them in the box, even if you've been here for nine years. Um, It's an easy way just to say, hey, um, pray for me. Um, So this morning, we're going to talk about suffering. Uh, I've shared a great deal uh, about some of Gabby and I's journey and story, and part of me is like, well, which story do I actually begin with here? Do we do we go all the way back to 2004 when we're in Johns Hopkins Hospital, and at the time, this girl that I'm dating is having her hips broken and screwed back together and is in bedridden for a month, having to learn how to walk again, Right, and it was during this time that, like, I began to have some sense of bodily resurrection, some idea that, like, wait, wait, hold on, Jesus is doing more for us than just like inviting us to to like escape away into heaven. Like, Jesus is really ensuring and promising that He's going to do something about our broken bodies. Or maybe I share the story of um, when that surgery. Several years later, didn't take, and Gabby then needed another procedure, and how I prayed for Gabby three times at communion at a church here in Houston, standing in line, put my hands on her, and I said, Lord, quietly, softly to myself, no one else knew, please just, like, heal her. Like, not even in a miraculous way, just, like, let this procedure that she's about to have done, like, let it actually just work. And three times after I prayed that prayer, at the Lord's table, the next day, something worse happened. The third time was finally a pop that she felt in her hip, which meant uh, the procedure didn't work, and now she needed a full hip replacement at like the age of 24. Or maybe I could share about the eight years of infertility that we went through, and the procedures, and the hope, and then the disappointment, and then the hope, and then the disappointment, and procedure after procedure after procedure after procedure, while we listen to comments like, this is just God's plan, you just have to hang on. I know a friend that as soon as they stopped trying, they got pregnant, and on and on and on. 
Or maybe I share about the time that we finally did get pregnant and we finally allowed ourselves to get excited, allowed ourselves to hope in the fact that like maybe, maybe God has actually heard our prayers and answered our prayers and is going to give us this child. And at 10 weeks, we sat in a room and we watched a lifeless screen as, and you cannot make this stuff up, how great is our God softly played in the background. Or maybe I could share about the intense and debilitating postpartum anxiety and depression that my wife went through during a pandemic after we finally did have a kid and my own struggles and insecurities about trying to be a pastor, trying to be a good husband, trying to raise a child in the midst of just chaos and suffering and floundering and not feeling like I really did a great job at any of those things. All while I'm trying to be enough for my wife, trying to be enough for my kid, trying to be enough for my church, and just feeling like a failure at all of them while I'm looking to the heavens going, God, where the heck are you in all of this? Or maybe I could share how a few months ago, when Zach stepped down, we went through the process of becoming the new pastor of Redemption Church. And then several weeks later, we found out that Gabby has lupus, a chronic illness with no current um, cure, that this is just pain that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. I later found out uh, my grandmother, I have some really beautiful memories of my grandmother. She passed when I was very young, but like my family was a mess, right? My family tree has lots of branches, right? And not in like the normal way, like in the brokenness and shattered sort of tree kind of way. If you know, you know. But my grandmother was always like this stabilizing figure in my head. She was the one person in my family that had like this really robust faith. And she was always just, my memories of her were always just very kind and gentle and loving and gracious. She died when I was young. And it was this year, a few months ago, that I found out that she died from complications of medication that she was taking because she had lupus. And I'm looking at all of this, and I'm looking at this story laid out, and I'm going, my God, this is a mess. And, and the questions that I have in all of this suffering is like, is this your plan for me, God? Like, is this what you want? Is this your will for my life? But really, because none of this is happening to me, most of this is happening to Gabby, and I'm just like a passenger going, ah, let me fix it, and I can't. But really, what I'm asking is, God, do I even matter to you? Does she matter to you? Does any of this actually really matter to you? I also recognize that my story, while it is my own and it is unique to me, is probably not that unfamiliar to many of you. You have your own stories. You, if I gave you a microphone, could stand up here and go through a chronicle of pain and injury and abuse, and injustice, and chronic illness, and suffering, and death. 
And you, probably like me, have at some point asked the question, God, is this your plan? And you, if you're insecure like me, have probably asked the question, uh, if y'all don't know, I struggle with abandonment issues. If you haven't figured that out yet (laughs) at this point, like, God, do you even care? Where are you in all of this? Maybe I somehow deserve this. So I want, to, I want to spend some time today, like, really diving into these two questions. Is this really God's plan for me? And, uh, God, do you see me? Do you care? And I want to answer these because whether you've encountered it or not, there is a, a, a certain type of theology or theologies or there's a certain uh, type of ideas about God that kind of float through the, the ethos of the world that we live in that suggest suffering, yes, is in fact God's plan for you. Or that maybe you do in fact deserve everything that you're getting. When I first began to ask this question about suffering, I I remember it pretty starkly. I had just started in Bible college here at uh, the College of Biblical Studies in Houston. I had made a pretty significant mess of my life. Was like, well, I've screwed it up this much. What what else? Like, if I give it to God, what's he going to do? It can't be worse, right? It was around 2004. And for those of you that um, were, like, just being born, let me let you know what was going on in the world. (laughs) There had been, like, this massive tsunami Y'all remember the tsunami, right? So much has happened since then that this was like the biggest thing that had ever happened in the history of our lives. And now we're like, oh yeah, that thing. That's right. Forgot about that. It was like three decades ago, so I get it. Anyway, so there's this massive tsunami. I don't even remember how many, uh, I think it was millions of people that it killed. It was just devastating. It hit multiple countries, was horrible. And I remember reading a theologian say this, that God's tsunami was God's gracious act towards humanity. That we really deserved way worse than that, and God was sparing us. I heard the same thing after Hurricane Katrina, and I heard the same thing during the pandemic. Really, you deserve much worse. God is way more angry at you than this. And so he's just going to give you a little bit of a spanking. He's going to give you a little bit of abuse. He's going to hit you, but just a little bit. He's not going to really leave a bruise, just a nice little light backhand across the face. And this is the image and the picture of a God who supposedly loves us. And I began to go, wait a second, what do we do with suffering? What do we do with pain? What do we do with the fact that uh, God loves us, but also we're like literally going through hell on earth? What do we do with that? I think Romans 8 is helpful here. I think it helps us begin to answer this question. Sorry, I'm a little hyped up. I'm going to bring it back down to like a four because I got up to like a nine really fast. Deep breaths. And I want to start with the question, is suffering God's plan? And if you uh, are sensing the tone, I'm going to strongly suggest, no, it's not. Uh, But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to what the author of Romans has to say. Verse 18, for I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. We're going to come back to this because really what he's doing is he's 
about halfway through the chapter, he's been, this whole chapter is about assurance. And he said, hey, look, you have the spirit of God. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in and among you and is working for your good, is resurrecting you now, but it will also one day resurrect you in the future. But if you are going to share in resurrection, you should also expect to share in suffering. And so he puts this header at the beginning of this section that's like, hey, look, your sufferings right now are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to you later on. And we'll come back to this idea here in a second. But let's get to this question. Is suffering God's plan? How many of you have ever heard this? You're going through some sort of thing. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a life-altering thing. And someone comes up to you, well-meaning, well-intentioned, good-hearted, in love, says, well, you know, it's just God's plan. It's just God's plan that you get cancer. It's just God's plan that you lose your child. It's just God's plan that your house burns down. It's just God's plan that the city gets flooded. It's just God's plan that the globe goes through a pandemic where millions of people die. It's all God's plan. Number one, uh, how helpful was that? (laughs) Number two, wait, is that true? Uh, I want to suggest up front, clearly and plainly and pretty emphatically, suffering is not God's plan. Like, this is not plan A. Hey, I'm going to create human beings. I'm going to place them in a garden, and then I'm going to really, like, just turn the screws and cause them to suffer and make them writhe in pain so I can show them how glorious and wonderful I am. And that's not that far away from some versions of the gospel that you and I have heard and been taught. So Romans 8 gives us a lot of room for a world that's oppressed by sin and death which is important because, right, we all suffer. Everyone suffers. Everyone who exists in this world will experience some sort of suffering. And so the question of is this God's plan is sort of like, well, wait, we're all suffering. So you, are you saying that God is somehow like out of control here? Many of us have heard something along these lines. If you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. Right? Your, your cancer is a lack of faith. Or the fact that you still have it, well, you didn't pray hard enough or believe rightly enough, or maybe you're going to the wrong church. Maybe you're living in sin. Your mental illness, your depression, well, clearly, if you had believed more, then the depression would go away. This is not a neurological, biological thing in your head. This is really a faith issue. Right? I, I think we've heard this over and over and over again. You should believe harder. You'll find healing. You should look on the bright side. And you'll see that your suffering is actually really a good thing. It's a gift. And what we've done is we've subtly bought into what we would call the prosperity gospel. Where if you do X, Y, and Z, then God will respond with X, Y, and Z. And we can do it both ways, right? If I right, give Brandon a million dollars, which if the Lord is leading you right now, bless you, hallelujah. Okay, please don't give me a million dollars. I don't even know where to begin with what I would do with that. You can buy me lunch, okay? <laughs> right, but we, we hear this all the time. Like, if you give this, then God will double give back to you. 
Give to Redemption Church and then things will go better for you. When it's actually the opposite of that. Following Jesus is not an invitation into a life of comfort and ease and blessing. Following Jesus is more often than not an invitation into suffering. Because the world that opposed Jesus is going to oppose us. The enemy that hates Jesus also hates his children. That's another conversation for another day. But the reality is, if it was true that if I do X, Y, and Z, then I would not suffer, then why did Jesus suffer? Beloved Son of God, faithful and obedient perfectly. He suffers betrayal from a best friend. He suffers injustice from a corrupt empire. He suffers mocking from his own people. He suffers like the physical brutality and ultimately he suffers death. So the prosperity gospel thing, like let's get rid of that. We're all gonna suffer. And our journey through Romans 8 is gonna remind us part of the reason why we suffer is because we live in a broken and fallen world that is still at some level controlled by sin and death. It's as simple and as dark as that. It ain't fixed yet. If I could use my Southeast Texas theology there. All right, but it's not only us, it's the entire cosmos. Look at what he says in verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits, literally is like longing and aching expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. And we talked about this language of sons of God last week. If you missed that, you can go back and look at that. Um, these, those who have the spirit that are heirs with Christ, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it. The, the creation was subjected, was put under the, the reign of futility. Now, depending on your translation, this word is translated uh, a number of different ways. It's very similar to the word, if, you, if you're like super cynical and dark like me, you love Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes begins with vanity and of vanities, all is vanity, right? Which is literally like meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And all my former emo kids are like, yeah, straight edge. Anyways. And the word means exactly what it sounds like. Creation has been subjected to a certain level of meaninglessness. Right? The, the language here is very strong. Does everything happen for a reason? Romans 8 verse 19 is telling you, no. Sometimes hurricanes go where they're not supposed to. Sometimes ice caps melt, and sometimes that's our, pro- our fault, You're eating too many hamburgers. This this word is purposeless, meaningless, transitory. Creation has been put under the burden of chaos. Sometimes viruses mutate. Sometimes cells mutate. Sometimes pandemics happen because the world is broken from head to toe, top to bottom, inside and out. The globe, the creation, God's good and beautiful cosmos has been shattered. 
It is no longer good. We forget this. And to, to say everything happens for a reason is to say that God wants the earth to be shattered, that God wants you to have cancer, that God wants you to sin against him and against your neighbor. God wants you to hate. God wants you to be racist. Of course not. So when we really start to unpack this idea, well, everything happens for a reason, we either need to say everything happens for a reason and God is like really cruel or maybe everything doesn't happen for a reason and at some level the cosmos is spinning out of control. Now, right, if you grew up in the church circles that I grew up in, I'm like now bordering on heresy. And you're like, hold on, bro, what are you saying here? I want to unpack this just for a little bit because I think this can be helpful for us in wrestling with like, does God care and why are we suffering? Because there's, there's two common solutions to that. I suffer and therefore God doesn't care. I suffer and therefore God is not able to do anything about it, right? That's, that's one option. Another option is I suffer because that's exactly what God has wanted and willed for my life. I want to suggest uh, another option. Right, so back in Genesis 1, we're reminded that when God created creation, he created it, and after each day, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But before that, in Genesis 1 and 2, or verses 1 and 2, you get this language of, and God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. It was chaotic and dark, and darkness covered the face of the earth. And waters covered the earth. And this is the, the ancient Near Eastern language for like chaos. And there was this goddess. She was chaotic. No one could control her. Her name was Yam. Same word for sea, waters. And so there's some ancient Near Eastern like mythology that's playing into this uh, Genesis 1. And God comes in and his spirit flutters over the darkness. And then God speaks. Let there be light. And And the formlessness and the emptiness and the chaos is brought to order by God. And the main thing that Genesis is trying to tell you is this is the type of God who takes dead things and brings them back to life. This is the type of God who takes dark things and turns them into light. This is the type of God who takes chaos and brings order and beauty out of it. This is the story in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 of a God of resurrection. But in that, creation is created good, humanity does their thing, and all of a sudden, the earth that was supposed to be blessed and flourishing and producing fruit is now all of a sudden producing thorns and thistles. What's a thistle, anyways? Like, uh, it's like something from Bible that is stuck in my head, and I don't think I've ever encountered a thistle in my life. In my imagination, it's those things when you're walking through your grass in the barefoot in Texas that you step on, and they're like extremely sharp, and they somehow end up in your house. That's going to be a thistle from now on. So one of the most helpful ways to understand this is to start very simply with a couple of anchors. Who is God and what is God like? And I want to assert, one, that God is the type of God who brings order 
to chaos, who brings life to death, who brings goodness to brokenness, who brings beauty from ashes. Like this is just what God does because it's who he is. Like more simply put, God is good. But it's not just goodness that like floats around in some sort of like vague abstract. It's goodness that acts on behalf of us. So therefore we say God is love. And the God of goodness and the God of love are our anchors. So whenever we start to believe that God might do or act or be this over here and it somehow goes against God being good or God being loving, I think we should check ourselves and come back to those two big anchors. But because God is good, Whenever anything is separated from God or moves away from God, it moves away from goodness itself. It moves away from the source of all goodness. Uh, Maybe put it this way. If God is life and the source of all life, if everything uh, moves and breathes and has their being in God, then if I move away from God, I am moving away from life. And when I move away from life, what's the word for that, y'all? Go ahead, you can say it out loud. It's death. To move away from life itself is to die. A world that is under sin and death is a world separated from God. And not in some punitive sense where God's going to show you, but as the natural consequence of what happens when you live a life separated from God. And so the world separated from God is a world of sin and death. And the ones who are responsible for this is like us, right? So unfortunately, this is the story that the scriptures tell us. Humanity is primary, primarily the ones that are like at fault. And like if you're like, well, I don't know, that's a little harsh. Like let's look around for just a second. Um, like what is our relationship to the earth? We, we haven't had a great, a great track record over the last hundred years. You know what I'm saying? Like things are not moving in a positive direction, But back to God's plan. So God's plan is not for suffering. It's not for pain. God's plan is for a good and fully alive humanity and a flourishing cosmos. This is what we see in Genesis. It's also what we see in Revelation at the end of all things, when God's plan is fulfilled. And so God has subjected the cosmos to an existence without his full presence and without his full control. And this means that not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes brokenness just happens. I know that that's a hard pill to swallow, right? There's, There's no easy answers here. There's no like easy platitudes, but I can embrace that a lot more wholeheartedly than embrace a God who has done this to me. who has caused pain and caused suffering, right? And if you want to say, well, Brandon, I don't know, you're, you might have deserved it. Like, okay, fine, fair enough. What about children? Or, right, maybe you don't like people. <laughs> what about animals? 
Like, I know this is maybe stupid, maybe it's grotesque, maybe it's too dark, I don't know. But I literally think about this every time I see roadkill, whatever it is, I see it and I'm like, it's like grotesque. And exactly, of course it's grotesque. Of course it has a stench. Of course everything in us is repulsed by it. It is a reminder of the brokenness that we exist in. Uh, maybe that was silly, but letting you in on some of my own thinking. And so wait, so God has willingly given up a level of control. So what we don't mean is that God has lost the ability to control things. He is not like, oh no, what's going to happen next? Ah, He is not somehow, hey, I've got a plan, and then, oh no, things have gone wrong, and now, oh, what am I going to do? That's a lot different than choosing to let go. But we're also not saying that God has given up full control, right? This would be deism. So option one, uh, God has total control over all things. All of a sudden, God becomes fairly cruel and the author of evil. That's not okay. Option two, God is completely disinterested, has lost all control, and now we're all deists, and you can be like Thomas Jefferson and write a Bible without any miraculous stuff in it. Rather, what I would suggest is that this is a God who is outside of the chaos, outside of the cosmos that has been separated from him, that enters into it regularly and intervenes in it regularly in order to bring resurrection, to bring life, to bring beauty, to bring goodness, to bring order to the chaos. But until then, we all bear the weight of suffering and pain. Right? This would all be very bad and unfortunate news if this was the end of the story. But God is not done with us, and this is exactly Romans 8's, Roman 8's point. Going back to verse 20. Creation has been subjected to futility because of God who subjected it in hope. Like this is a temporary state that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So that creation itself is hoping, is longing, is yearning for the day when God makes things right, when it's itself will be set free from the decay and from the chaos and from the corruption that it's been subjected to. And it will be released from its bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so there's this correlation between what God is doing in and among us and creation itself. Verse 22, for we know that the entire creation groans and suffers together until now. So this uh, relegation to meaninglessness, to vanity, to hopelessness, right? this is not indefinite, but is rather one that is done in hope. Hope that freedom is coming, the bondage of decay, the bondage of death, the bondage of entropy has an end. It is not just how the world is meant to work. Chaos comes to an end when God's children finally and fully experience freedom. When the sons of God, the heirs 
co-heirs with Christ, experience their full adoption. I like this from Karl Barth. I told you about Barth a few weeks ago in his um, commentary on Romans. He describes this section of Romans this way. This creation, this current one, and nothing in this creation is eternal life. You might see glimpses that look like it, shadows of it, tastes of it, but there is nothing here that is eternal life. Rather, what is here is decay, uncreation, death. It's what Romans calls the bondage of corruption, where energy and matter pass into corruption, organization into disrepair, and a longing for life is met only with inevitable death. He concludes, this is not life. This is not flourishing. And I would add, this is not God's plan for the cosmos. So, verse 23, we'll wrap it up here. Not only this, but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption that is the redemption of our bodies. So the picture that, that Paul is painting here is a picture of birth. It is a creation that is groaning in pain and writhing in pain as it eagerly anticipates and looks forward to like literally life. And he, he kind of plays off this birthing metaphor that it's groaning under this pain and we are groaning under this pain until the day that we experience the children of God, the adoption as sons. And Paul tells you exactly what this is in verse 23. As we eagerly await our adoption, that is the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Right, and it's this idea that has helped me through so much of sitting back and having to watch my wife suffer in physical pain for decades. That those prayers of healing, while they might not be being answered right here and now, Jesus has promised me, has assured me, I hear them and I will emphatically answer them one day. I will heal her body. Salvation for us is not going to heaven when we die. Salvation for us is when we, who are dead and most likely put into the ground, unless you want to be buried at sea, that's your choice. It's when God brings us back up out of the ground and resurrects us. Our hope is in resurrection, bodily, earthly resurrection. Creation's hope is our resurrection. The cosmos is longing for the day when Jesus resurrects us and it all flourishes. Calvin, yeah, that, that Calvin said it this way, there is no fragment or particle of the world which in the grip of the knowledge of its present misery is not hoping for resurrection. 
Like, this is our great hope. And the description of Romans 8 is that as we wait for this, verse 23, we groan. We groan. We hurt. We suffer. This is not a promise that, hey, if you believe in Jesus, everything's going to get better. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, then your business will thrive. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, then suddenly all your mental illnesses will go away. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, then you will be healed. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, then you'll have more money. This is not that gospel. This is the gospel of a crucified God who enters into our suffering with us, who dies our death for us so that we can share in his resurrection, his return to life. And as we wait for it, we wait for it with hope in our groaning. Verse 24, for in hope you and I were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So I think a lot of times we mistake hope for like optimism. I just wish we could be more hopeful. I wish we could be just a, a group of people that just in general, just look on the bright side. It's a nice, beautiful day. Why are we talking about such sad and miserable stuff? Because it's the world we live in, number one. Number two, uh, there's a big difference between hope and optimism, right? Uh, we can probably find some formal definition somewhere. Here's mine, right? Whereas optimism wants to say, hey, look, things aren't really that bad, Things aren't as quite, quite as bad as they seem. Hope says, no, 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 I know that things are bad right now, but things are going to change. Hope says, one day things will be different. So with hope, we can suffer. With hope, we can endure pain. With hope, we can understand that whatever I'm going through right now, even if it be unto death, it is not the end of the story. But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance or patience. It's another way to translate that. And so our job is to hopefully and expectantly wait for the redemption that Jesus has promised us. So I want to give you a couple of practical things, and then we'll be done, I swear. What do we do with our suffering? So number one, I want us to remember that God hurts with us. We do not believe in a distant God, and we do not believe in a God who causes our pain. This is not what God wants for us. Suffering is, in fact, a sign that something's broken. Things are wrong. We know that we worship and entrust ourselves to a God who has suffered for us and who comes alongside us and meets us in our suffering. We're going to see more about this next week. We even will see the God who enters into our suffering and groans on our behalf, who is suffering with us. But that's next week. Number two, we trust in the God of resurrection, not in a God of cruelty. This means that God can and often does bring goodness, life, beauty out of brokenness, but it does not mean he caused the brokenness. Sometimes we hear this as God has caused the brokenness so that he could bring good things out of it, and that is not the case. God overcomes evil 
with good. We should never be a people that call evil good. And lastly, we live with hope. Hope says that one day things will be different. Let's not be a people who call evil good. Let's be a people who see evil for what it is, who allow it to have its effect on us because it should and it will. And let's live and work towards a world of resurrection, even if it kills us, because we know that God is going to bring us back from the dead. I'll leave you with this idea. Uh, This is modified from C.S. Lewis in his The Problem of Pain. So in it, Lewis talks about how at the center of God's created world is God, that this God of love is central to all things. That all things, right, move and live and have their being in this God of love. And as we were created by God, we were created by this God of love so that God might love us. Right? And I think a lot of times we hear this as we were created so that we would love God, right? and that's absolutely true, but it is not the first and primary thing for which we were created. We were created to be objects of the God of love. And having received that love, only then reflect it back and give it back fully to God. Because without God first loving us, we are unable to love him because he is love and the source of all love. We exist so that God might love us. So this means that God, Christ, is the center of the cosmos and love is at the center of the cosmos and from that center, from divine love, God's love and God's grace and thus God's redemption extends out into the shattered cosmos. Restoring it Recentering it, reorienting it, resurrecting it, bringing it back to the place that it was supposed to be. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. Please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.